listening to Nearly Numinous, a podcast all about the religious side of life. Every week we chat about different religions, spiritualities, and other beliefs. We do roundtable discussions, deep dives into histories and religious studies theories, and interview different religious leaders or practitioners. For full transcripts and more information on each episode, you can find us at nearlynuminous.ca. Welcome to Nearly Numinous. Today is our In the News episode for July. We'll be talking about a wide range of topics today, including psychology of religion and a discussion of religion, ethics, and AI, as well as Islamophobia in Canada. As usual, we'll provide links to every article mentioned in our show notes on the website. I looked up the topic of science versus religion because um, I was feeling bummed about not doing my PhD this year. And then I looked up uh, other courses at the University of Edinburgh, and there's a master's degree in science versus religion. So I was like, okay, I need somebody tell me not to tell me not to get a second master's degree because this looks really cool. <laughs> so I'm thinking about that, but I'm putting it aside. But I looked up uh, science versus religion for the article today, and I found this really cool one uh, basically on the, sci- uh, the psychology of religion. And even though I didn't really study this in my undergrad, I do... It, it is my undergrad degree in psychology, so I thought it'd be cool to talk about. So this whole discussion of like science versus religion is kind of one that you can find throughout the world of academia and outside it too. Like, you know, there's a stereotype that if you're a scientist or, you know, higher educated, you won't probably won't be religious you're more likely to be like logical in air quotes and therefore you know not have faith um and then if you're on the opposite side opposite uh if you're religious then you're not as likely to believe in science and i mean there is some like I guess there is some data sometimes to support, like, there are some types of religious people who are less likely to believe in science, and, you know, there are some, you know, scientists that are, you know, not religious, but, you know, it's a stereotype that kind of perpetuates this unfair fight between the world of science versus religion, and I think it probably, I'll I'll ask you guys about it after we talk about the article, but I'll I'll move on. Um, So the psychology of religion, it kind of involves a lot of different things. It involves like the study of neuroscience, clinical psychology, social psychology, developmental, so many others. And it focuses on religious experiences and convictions, how religion is experienced in the brain, how it affects mental health and relationships, who is more quote-unquote prone to religion and spirituality. It kind of, it's kind of a niche section of psychology that doesn't get a lot of funding, but is really, really, really interesting. So it's always cool when I find an article about it. And this one article that I found recently is titled Religion on the Brain 
and it's from uh, thescientist.com. And it basically talks about where you can observe the effects of religion and religious experiences in the brain, like the specific areas, um, using lesion network mapping. So, lesion, I don't want to get too technical, but um, lesion network mapping is sort of based on this older, um, this older methodology in the world of psychology where if somebody's, a part of somebody's brain was damaged, then you would, you know, observe and record how they were affected, like um, mentally, physically, emotionally, what cor- what abilities correspond to what part of the brain. And um, we're still doing that, but in a more humane way. Um, the, the beginning of psychology was not very nice, um, to put it lightly. But so they're using lesion network mapping these days, and the article was saying one of the areas where um, you can, religion and religious experiences are like sort of observable is the temporal lobe. So the temporal lobe is sort of responsible for like sensory input and encoding memory. So you can see where uh, religion religious experiences and how they might affect you long-term could be involved with that area of the brain. And then another section was the periaqueductal gray, the PAG, which has a role in like pain modulation, fear conditioning, and altruism, basically um, motivated behaviors. So that's another area that some of the uh, scientists in this article studied that they found um, when it was uh, when subjects had surgery or when they had bits of it removed, then religiosity and the like was affected. Um, I strongly encourage you to read this article because it's very interesting and it's it explains it way better than I ever could. But basically, there's not a lot of conclusive evidence on why these regions in particular are associated with religiosity. I mean, we can guess, uh, like I said, they do have roles in certain areas which may correspond to religion. Um, But there are a lot of problems with these studies. Like I said, they don't get a lot of funding, so they're very, very limited. Um, they usually, these studies usually only recruit Christians, so it would be really interesting to see how uh, people's experience of religion would change in the brain if they, you know, weren't Christian, if they were maybe Buddhist or indigenous, you know, all that. That would be really cool. Um, and scientists are still kind of unable to determine causality. So you hear this a lot in the sciences in the sciences correlation does not equal causation. So just because, you know, um religiosity might be correlated with issues or injuries with the temporal lobe or the periaqueductal gray that 
doesn't mean it's caused by those issues. It's not conclusive yet. So they don't know whether like religiosity causes changes in the brain too, or like do changes in the brain cause religiosity. It's a it's sort of a field that needs a lot more focused funding and study before, you know, we can come up with any conclusive evidence. So mm-hmm. hopefully that changes in the near future. Um, so would these tests, the Alicia network mapping, would they be done with fMRI machines? Is that kind of what they would do? They would hook like these these various religious people up to these machines or do you know like how how they would do that? I'm gonna look up lesion network mapping because I don't really know much about it. Um, yes, it is fMRIs, I think. Okay, so those are the ones that like track the movement of blood and stuff through the, the brain. Is that that's kind of how they work? I think so, yeah. It's been quite a few years since my degree. Yeah, but... me too. <laughs> we need um... a science expert to join in on our conversation. <laughs> Um, kind of what I was hearing, I've um, I've listened to several podcasts that talk about these sorts of tests, uh, specifically on uh, religious experiences, so tran- transcendent experiences mm-hmm. specifically. Um, and the person on this podcast was talking about how a it's really hard to hook someone up to this these machines and like force them to have a religious experience. Mm-hmm. Um, being hooked up to machines like that's not really conducive, maybe to the sorts of experiences, um, yeah, that they're looking for uh, when under pressure. But then also because fMRI machines are pretty rare, actually, and um, you need to have a a really good. Um, research project i guess to be granted the the use of these machines and so um Mm -hmm. yeah i guess it's just like really difficult for both of those situations to coincide so they have really small sample sizes as well yeah yeah that was a good like first three pages of my master's research essay was just talking about how you can't do research on religious experience properly because there's so many barriers yeah. in place. Yeah. And like that was the big one is when someone's having a religious experience, you can't just like shove them in a machine like that would in- interrupt the religious yeah. experience. And maybe you know a bit about this stuff, but I think that's partially why um, drugs and substances are involved in the psychology of religion, because they've been mm-hmm. known to sort of induce religious experiences. And uh, it's you know, like you said, you can't just throw someone uh, in an fMRI and be like, okay, experience God now. But, you know, have a vision. (laughs) Exactly. But if you take a certain type of substance, maybe you're more likely to have that sort of experience and you can, you know, control it. For sure. I mean, so that's actually an area if I were to do a PhD, that's what I would want to look at. Um, Yeah. And like, I'm like seriously considering doing some like undergrad courses in neuroscience just so I can like Mm. push my way in there. Um, But I think it it is really interesting with psychedelics because it's definitely a lot easier to study someone on psychedelics in a machine because it's a little bit more of a controlled environment. Um, I think there's also a lot more controlled variables in that, right? So like, Mm. you know what you're giving someone, you know what kind of reaction they have, et cetera, right? Whereas with religious experience, that is 
well, again, we wouldn't know, but there's not really like necessarily a huge pattern between like individual people and the religious experience they have. Like you often see some patterns just from like external observation. Um, And I mean, we could get into the whole discussion of like communal ritual and experience. And like, I think that's what I'm going to talk about in probably next week's episode. But (laughs) anyway, Um, but yeah, so I think it's like a little easier to study someone on psychedelics to like see what that religious experience looks like but it's hard to actually know for sure if that experience is the same as like a quote-unquote authentic religious experience I say authentic like Mm -hmm. because Mm. you can't really define authentic but what well and also as you I know you've um you've looked into some of these communal experiences like fire walking and stuff Mm -hmm. like that um and just thinking about yeah like when you're hooked up hooked up to an fMRI. I have never actually seen one in person, but I would assume you can't move too much. I would assume there are wires and things. And so likely the religious practices that are being used for these these studies are like probably just, you know, stationary prayer, that sort of thing. And yeah, that's not like the, ex- the full extent of what religious practice is for a lot of people. And so for I'd sure. wonder if like if other types of practices could be brought in if we wouldn't see more areas with brain lighting up. Yeah, I think um, as well, you see a lot of studies, especially within the last 20 years on um, like Buddhist monks um, or like anybody that is really, really skilled in meditation. Um, And that one seems to be a little bit easier to study because you're sitting. Mm -hmm. Like when you meditate, like you can do moving meditations, but typically you're sitting. (laughs) Um, and I think there's also an element of that, of like a trained meditator, mm-hmm. trained meditator, the highly yeah. good <laughs> meditated person. Um, <laughs> they also are, they've trained their brain well enough that they can actually like ignore mm-hmm. what's going on around them. Like that's the whole point. So I think it's easier to study something like that because they're able to achieve that certain religious experience that they're looking for with all those things interrupting them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, when we were talking about um, psychedelics, you mentioned stuff like uh, sort of inducing religious experiences might be different than what we some people would call like an, an authentic religious experience. So I'm kind of wondering, like, how does studying how like religion and religious experiences work in the brain even like with including psychedelics does it kind of disprove them if we can just induce them like that if they're not sort of organic or you know coming from a higher power I think that's a really complicated question because I mean from you can take a couple of different perspectives from this right and I think one perspective is if the religious experience does what it is supposed to do, then it doesn't matter how it happens or, you know, like it doesn't matter if we can explain it, if it still has the ultimate end goal of creating some sort of euphoric state enlightenment, um, you know, one of the other kind of quote unquote goals, I guess you could say of religious experience. Um, That being said for uh, a devout, religious person there is that certain um magical element i guess 
required for that mystical experience or other religious experience that I think if you explain that away, it could affect maybe their ability to even have that religious experience. This is all just me spitballing if you guys have other opinions on this. Mm -hmm. Well, I know I've, um, there was, there was someone recently in an online community that I'm a part of that had a psychedelic experience and, um, during it received some sort of message from a divine being. And this person was very concerned because, um, it was such an important, uh, vision for them, but then they were instantly questioning, like, it, what is this a real message, or like, is it more or less real than if I would just have it without psychedelics? So there's this whole, this question about like, what is a real religious religious experience that gets a little bit complicated for people. Mm-hmm, for sure. What do you guys think about the whole science versus religion debate? I actually had this conversation with my partner recently because he's science, I'm religion. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was talking about this debate that he had listened to. uh, And again, it's like the whole like is I think the question was, is Christianity a force for good in the world or something? Right. And I then proceeded to go on this huge rant about how I hate when you pit science versus religion. (laughs) So Part of it is, and I think the main part of it is the fact that the whole point of religion is it's supposed to be, it's supposed to have a certain ineffability, right? Is that the right word? Ineffability? Ineffable? I think so. It's a word. Um, It's a word. It's a word. (laughs) Sure. Making up words here. (laughs) But because of that, the whole point is you're not supposed to be able to put certain aspects into words, right? You're not supposed mm-hmm. to be able to describe every single aspect of it. So then when you pit it against science, which the whole point is to be able to describe everything, mm-hmm. it's not a fair debate because you're pitting something, you're pitting two things against each other that don't exist in the same language. Yeah. And I, I think would that say, it's unfair to both. Yeah. I would say that religion is a worldview and science is supposed to be a methodology. And so those are very different things. And for some people, science does become a worldview, but like science, science is supposed to be like a way of studying things. um, And that's just not what religion is meant to do. Yeah, exactly. What do you think? I think they can also complement each other. I mean, Mm -hmm. If you're, if your goal in life is to, you know, if you're just looking for a worldview, something that makes sense to you, I think both religion and science can help you create that worldview. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I agree. It's kind of useless to pit them against each other and frustrating too. Um, yeah. Well, I feel like this question leads into my article a little bit. So I feel like, you know, going off the topic of the science versus religion debate, this is kind of like a case study in it, I guess. But it's more in the realm of like, how can religion help science? You know, the article that I pulled was actually an op-ed in the New York Times called Can Silicon Valley Find God? 
And basically, to give a bit of a summary, uh, it talks a lot about having a religious perspective and ethics, especially when it comes to the tech industry, specifically with artificial intelligence and the development of AI and the expansion of AI. So uh, it opens with a study by Shannon Bodker. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, It's a problem with reading instead of like listening to things. (laughs) So uh, he's a former Microsoft general manager who's now pursuing a PhD in AI and spirituality through St. Andrews in Scotland. Uh, And he has also founded the group AI and Faith, which helps to push forward the dialogue between tech developers and religious groups. Uh, And this includes leaders, ethicists, and like people who participate in religions. Um, So the study itself put a bunch of smart home devices so like google home amazon alexa those kind of things um and they gave it to various people of various faiths so there was um like a wide range of traditions included in this include as well as religious nuns so people who aren't religious um but also aren't atheists they're just eh, you know (laughs) so they had these participants ask the quote-unquote big questions. Um, it didn't necessarily specify what those big questions were, but I'm guessing, you know, like, what's the meaning of life? What is it to be human? Things like that um, were posed. That's kind of the the vibe I was getting from the description in the article. Um, but ultimately, the question that the study was posing was, how do our devices transform the way society thinks about the big questions and ultimately religion? And, like, how does that affect our religious identity as well? Uh, In the end, the study found that participants were quick to enter what they called emotional mode, where the AI was able to use language to trigger the participants' memories and emotional states to the point where it was easy for the participants to begin, like, anthropomorphizing the AI devices. Um, It also, like, triggered those memories to cause, like, this emotional reaction. Um, So the article then kind of goes on to talk a lot about how religion is so often taken out of the discussion on ethics, even though religion drives most people's ethics and values. And because like our devices are controlling so much of our thought patterns, it kind of, you need to flip the script as well and make sure that like your values and thought patterns are in spot, like going back to these devices. Mm -hmm. Um, And also recognizing like how drastically it can shift your thought patterns. So uh, it's interesting, too, because he talks a lot about um, how in, like, the Silicon Valley, they're trying to, like, bring these ethicists in and, like, chief ethics officers and stuff. Um, But even then, they're still keeping everything non-religious. So all the language is very secular. um, And they don't, like, even when they ask, like, their employees and stuff, like, nobody ever talks about religion because that's kind of seen as, like, you know, don't do that in this environment. Um, There was a joke they were talking about. I guess there's a TV show called Silicon Valley, and I guess, like, there's a line in it where they're, like, oh, yeah, you can put LSD in your cereal in the morning and everyone will think you're a visionary, but you can't be a Christian. (laughs) Which, like, this whole article is kind of getting at that, right? Uh, So then part of this article also talked about how um, there's this one Silicon Valley executive turned um, 
pastor. Uh, I want to say priest. I don't know if he ended up being Catholic. He might have just been a pastor. I can't remember. But he said in like the article, uh, I realized at one point that what I was doing was calling forth light and darkness with the power of my voice, which is God's first spoken command. So he's talking about like with his Google assistant saying like, hey, turn on the lights. <laughs> um, but then he said like, it's certainly convenient. I certainly appreciate it. But is it affecting my soul at all? The fact that I'm able to do this thing that previously only God could do. Um, I found that funny. I don't. Okay. So like, first off, do you guys think that we're taking over God's role by being able to tell a speaker to turn on the lights? I think he's overthinking that. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, you can literally command your device to answer to certain phrases. So you could say, let there be light, and it would light up everything. That's <laughs> just the idea of that is really funny to me. Um, yeah. Personally, I do think he's maybe overthinking things a little bit. I don't think we're taking over God's place or anything, but um, it's an interesting thought for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the big question with artificial intelligence too, right? Is like how long until it takes over our entire world and takes on the place of God, right? Mm -hmm. So like I can see like the wormhole or the rabbit hole that he kind of fell down. Um, yeah. But I think it's a bit of a reach. I don't think your soul is damned because you asked Alexa to turn on the lights. I mean, I guess in a way, if if we're going down his rabbit hole too, like we're also playing God a, a little bit. Like if, you know, supposedly man is created in God's image and AI is created in ours, then soon we might have, you know, walking, talking AI that might be indistinguishable from a human, but, you know, is our creation. So are we taking over, you know, the creator's job there? Yeah. Well, I mean, then then you're getting into the question of, like, what does it mean to be human? Like, what's a creation? Who has a does soul? Who doesn't? have a soul? What is a soul? Uh, anyway, I spend a lot of time thinking about these questions, and it breaks my brain. You and I took a course on this, Steph. So we've, uh, yeah. we've thought a lot about this. <laughs> Whereas for me, yeah, no offense, but these kind of questions, I just kind of get to the point where I'm like, meh, I don't care, and then I move on. <laughs> Fair enough. So when I first tried, to, so I actually took a course in undergrad for like two weeks and then I dropped out of it and it was pretty much the same course. Yeah. It was like religion and ethics uh, for like transhumanism, AI, things like that. Yeah. And I had to drop out of it because like, you know, at 20 years old, I was like, I don't know, man. I just. <laughs> I don't have an answer. I just really don't like, I don't like courses in ethics because very often they treat like these courses treat people with different identities, such as people with disabilities, as just like their lives as being thought experiments, which I just is mm -hmm. just not something I could ever get on board with. And I would not be able to sit in for a sure. class and participate in a thought experiment about someone's life just for funsies. Um, so that's mm -hmm. kind of like, I just check out pretty quickly. It's a very good point. Yeah, it definitely creates like a certain threshold of like, all right, what's a normal person? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, which is um, increasingly becoming more and more obvious how challenging that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I think it's easier to define what a normal person is when you have a very shallow worldview. <laughs> yeah. We are working on not having a shallow worldview. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's the whole anyway. thing in disability studies, like, there is no normal person. So, like, there's this 
this this imaginary normal body that chairs are made for and you know doorways are made for but then if you actually break down what does this normal person <laughs> six foot white man. yeah exactly <laughs> like what like how many people are there actually that fit those like exact specifications and very very few less than 50 percent of the population in canada yeah. actually <laughs> anyway i i won't go on that range. <laughs> All right, it's going back to the article, though. So I think one of the big questions they asked was, do, okay, this is a kind of a complicated question. Do we need religion to have ethics? Or have we moved beyond needing to include religious language when we speak about ethical principles and values? I mean, that's really difficult, because on the one hand, I am a proponent of, you know, separating church and state. I think that, like, um, including religion and religious education in some things can, in my life personally, it's been harmful, Um, though I don't think, you know, religion itself is harmful. Um, And I think, you know, just basing... Uh, ethics just on science or just on religion um, or largely on religion could be a bad thing. Maybe the same way not including religion and ethics at all would be a bad thing. Um, I don't know. That's a tough question. I think as long as religion is important to people, as long as it influences their decisions, their thought processes, our world, I think it should be, you know, a factor in how we study ethics. And yeah. Yeah, I would agree. And um, very often in these conversations about religion and ethics, um, religion is Christianity. And so I think, Mm -hmm. I think it's important Mm -hmm. to include religion, but to also be cautious that religion isn't just Christianity. And so if you're actually, um, trying to look at them both to actually like take into account more religions than just Christianity. Yeah, Mm -hmm, for sure. Yeah, I think it's interesting because where I struggle with this question is just in the fact that I think because I grew up in a religious family surrounded by people who are also religious and in a system, like living in a system like governmental, environmental, et cetera, that served my religion, it's hard to separate how people can have meaning-making and ethics and values without taking account their religion because that's how my worldview has been set up for me. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? So I'd be interested in, like, hearing from somebody who didn't grow up Christian, like, how they then pull their values and ethics because, again, to me... That's where, like, when I was growing up, it was like, you need to do this because this is what it is to be a good person and Jesus wants you to be a good person. You know, so even though, like, I might not necessarily directly make that connection in my brain now, it's still in the background, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think you guys are right. Like, you need you need a mix of, you know, religious and non-religious and, you know, Christian and other types of uh, religions perspectives on things um Mm -hmm. otherwise 
if we're all just, you know, listening to the same, the same thing spoken over and over, then the people who aren't, you know, part of that group will be left out. Mm-hmm. All right. I have more questions. I'm curious of your opinions on things. So uh, this kind of goes back to Rachel's article as well. Um, and something that I always get extremely frustrated about, especially because I'm at a point in my life where I want to continue research, but I want to do more, like I was saying, like science-based research, but I'm not a scientist. Mm-hmm. So this, this is something that's maybe like a personal vendetta I have. But this article specifically also points out the fact that artificial intelligence research and development never, like it always is done by like engineers, software developers, very like science-minded people and, you know, those kind of people, right? Um, it never really includes anybody that does not exist within the tech and science space. So this doesn't necessarily... It doesn't only specifically say, like, it doesn't include religious studies people, but also, like, anybody that studies culture, literature, arts, basically any of the humanities. Um, And it says that, like, obviously there's there's issues to this. Um, And I think you see this as well in the article that Rachel was talking about. Like, oftentimes when you're having people do studies on the brain in religion, it's done by scientists. It's not done by people who are experts in religion. Um, so I think there's like a bit of a gap there. Do you think that there's any way forward that we can actually diversify the tech space and the research for like science research, for technology development, et cetera, to include religious studies? Or are we screaming at a void saying like, hey, pay attention to us and they never will? <laughs> I, I think the latter, but anyway. I think humanities in general is valued less uh, and like is seen as maybe less valid in the quote-unquote real world than the sciences so it's kind of hard to be like um with all these you know super smart tech-minded people um hey I have a degree in religious studies I think that maybe I could have uh, something to contribute what do you think because I think probably they would not, would say no. Um, yeah. They don't want to spend the money on us. Don't want to spend the money on it, us. Part of it too, um, I remember for our master's program, we, we read an article on, what was it? Was it cognitive science and religion or something like that? that yeah. There was an article on that. So. And there was no mention of any parts of the brain or like any sort of actual psychological language. And I think that's a big problem um, for us as religious studies scholars is that like we need to know this language. Um, So to a certain point, it is on us to learn the scientific language so that we can go up to these people and be like, hey, I know these things. I think I would be a really great asset on this and this project. Um, but yeah, like I think we do to a certain point need to learn that ourselves as well. True. Mm-hmm. That's fair for sure. Yeah. Cause I, I think even looking at some of the research I'm interested in doing, it would require me to probably do a whole other undergrad. Mm. I wish it wasn't the case. Like I wish yeah. that there was maybe like opportunities to like 
learn while doing the research, but. Or like more programs that were interdisciplinary where you could like actively learn both things at the same time. For sure. Yeah. All right. I have one more meta question. Okay. This one is, you're going to hate me for this question. (laughs) All right. This article mentions a book by Yuval Noah Harari called Homo Deus. I think it's a pretty popular book, but I've never read it, uh, where there is a description of a future in which humans are replaced by godlike beings where algorithms rule the world, where humanism and spirituality are superseded by the data religion. I'm curious what you think of this, and is this already something we're moving towards? What exactly is the data religion? It's where data rules our life. And we worship data and numbers and like algorithms and yeah. Hmm. I think to an extent we already do that. We just, you know, don't call it religion. Yeah, it's a way we, it's a worldview. It's uh, it affects how we behave, it affects how we form relationships, it affects how we think and how we evolve as a species. Um, it, there, I mean, look at any of the definitions of religion you can find in, a, in an introductory course textbook. Um, you could probably apply some of them to, you know, the way we view data and science today. So I think this one, this like quote really stuck out to me. I think just because like now I work in marketing and the whole, the whole thing is data and numbers, right? And you look at these like articles of like how to get your blog post seen, like what's SEO, all this stuff. And it's, it's always like based on these numbers and these algorithms. And you hear about like Instagram's changing their algorithm again and everybody loses their mind and it's so interesting because like it says like humans are replaced by godlike beings. I would say like Mark Zuckerberg is like our godlike being. We just kind of hate him, <laughs> but he still rules our life. You know, so it's it's so interesting. Like it was the the word algorithms rule our li- lives that really like or rules the world that just like it gave me a bit of an existential crisis when I was rereading this this morning to like prep <laughs> but what doesn't give yeah, you I an existential especially... crisis stuff <laughs> everything does <laughs> did i tell you i was i was at a bar a few weeks ago with a friend um and we were sitting having like a chat we'd had a few drinks at this point and we were sitting like right at the bar and i don't remember what i was talking about but i was like yeah I spend 90% of my day in existential dread and the bar- bartender heard me and he looks up and he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I was like, you know, don't you? And he was like, no, I do. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> making friends in Calgary. It's fine. <laughs> Bonding over trauma. Oh. Oh, I think this question as well is interesting because um, going back to kind of like the earlier point in the article, which was talking about how like our devices can control our emotional responses to things now because they know like 
who we're talking to based on the ads you've liked or the things you've posted on social media. So they know which words, they know what things to say to trigger those things. And that's when I think it becomes kind of scary on the idea that like tech and like our devices, et cetera, these algorithms, these data points are starting to rule our life because they are actually directly influencing how we respond to things. Um, I've heard of studies as well from like past elections about political siloing on social media and how you only interact with people who share the same opinion as you and Facebook wants to keep you on the app. So they, and like Instagram, et cetera. So they show you things that they know you want to see. So they'll show you all these articles about the political candidate you like, or all of these articles trashing the political candidate you don't like so that you'll click on them. You'll take, they'll get more ad revenue, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And that is when, you know, this idea of algorithms ruling our life actually really hits home because like that's actually a real thing that is happening to everybody right now, like anybody with access to the internet, you know? And in the case of YouTube, like the YouTube algorithm is designed to, you know, make you want to click on the next video. So you just keep watching and watching and watching. And part of the reason they do that, like, the video they line up next is something that, you know, might be shocking or might be sort of extreme, just something that garners a response from you. And I've heard this is how people, you know, get radicalized, um, especially to the right, the far right and the all all right, Um, because the next video is something maybe that touches on a seed that was planted inside of them or you know, maybe they're just mm-hmm. like, oh my God, I can't believe anybody would think that. But then they watch it, then they watch the next one, then they watch the next one. And yeah, the algorithm is basically manipulating and changing your life. Mm-hmm. For sure. You start out with a video of like Tucker Carlson and then next thing you know, you're watching some like redneck in his basement yeah, telling you that vaccines are bad. <laughs> it's scary. Yep. Anyway, those are all, I feel like we really hit all the really super existential topics first, and now it's the real world terrors instead. (laughs) Yeah, we're moving on to a a not nicer subject. No, no. Okay, so the article that I brought was published actually uh, yesterday, but there's been similar articles published all across news sources uh, within the last 24 hours because it was about something really recent. So the title of this one that I chose is Weeks After Deadly Attack in London, Ottawa Hosts National Summit on Islamophobia Today. So today being yesterday um, for us as we're recording. So Thursday, the 22nd. So since our last In the News episode, there have been several Islamophobic hate crimes in Canada. For those in Canada, you've probably come across them on the news. Um, The one most covered in the news being the one that happened in London, Ontario in early June. And since then, there has been increased news news coverage of other hateful behavior speech towards Muslims, mostly Muslim hijabi women, as they report aggressive incidents that they have experienced um, as they go about their lives, shopping in stores or going on evening walks. And I believe most of the ones that are being reported are like have happened since this attack in London. So they're all also recent. People are just like calling the police um, 
and they're getting news coverage because of this other incident. So there have been several of such news stories that have taken place within the last month in Kingston, I've seen, um, but there have also been a lot um, in Alberta, um, seems to be a lot of these reportings. Unfortunately, yeah. Alberta's a pretty... Uh, yeah. What's the word I'm looking for? Non-diverse, mindsetted place? Conservative? Yeah, both of those. Yeah, that too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I think um, kind of the significance of like these Kingston ones and the ones in Alberta are that um, like a lot of these articles previously were happening in Quebec with Bill C-21. And so it um, and the news had kind of developed to look like Islamophobia is mostly just a Quebec issue. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not true. While it is obviously like such a big issue because of Bill C-21, Islamophobia is a problem all the way across Canada. Um, and so following this attack in London, the members of parliament voted to hold a summit on Islamophobia, as well as the summit on anti-Semitism. So the, the one on anti-Semitism happened the day before the one on Islamophobia. So that would be Wednesday, the 21st. Um, and so these events were both online. They were largely close to the public uh, just due to safety concerns. Um, but unfortunately, it sounds like they weren't actually as well organized as they could have been. Um, I was reading online that a lot of people even within like who were members of parliament only got an invite the evening before. So like really short notice. Um, and so not like there weren't nearly as many people there as there could have been. Um, the, this article that I read uh, goes on to say that on Wednesday, so when the anti-Semitism uh, summit was being held, the Canadian public safety minister, Bill Blair announced that the government will spend more than 6 million on 150 projects to support communities at risk of hate-motivated crimes. So this fund uh, will go towards community centers, schools, places of worship, etc., so that they can apply for funding for cameras, alarm systems, training for staff, etc., to help prevent or respond to hate-motivated crime. Um, and of course, while this program will definitely be useful, uh, it itself will not solve the problem of Islamophobia in Canada. I've read a number of other articles um, since then that have come out um, just talking about how how the summit went. Uh, this The one that I'm talking about right now it was one of the first ones that came out. Um, but other ones have said, um, you know, the summit makes Canada seem as if, as if it's a neutral umpire on the issue of Islamophobia. But it's really important to realize that that is not true. Um, and they cited things like the CRA's tendency to audit Muslim charities more often, as well as um, listeners in Canada may remember in 2015. Um, it, I'm not sure if this is the official name of the act, but this is the name that the the article um, gave the Barbaric yeah, Cultural Practices Act. Official. Yeah, I had thought so, but I wasn't 100% sure. But um, for those that don't remember this act, the Barbaric Cultural Practices Act, um, yeah, was passed by the Harper government, so the conservative government, and it was intended to protect immigrant women and girls from polygamy and forced marriages. But um, in practice, it just resulted from what I heard, like lots of neighbors calling 
in their other neighbors that um, that were different than them. And there was a lot of uh, cultural stereotyping and just like negative stereotyping specifically of immigrant communities that just had like different living practices than um, people may have been used to. Uh, and so this is one way that like the Canadian government actively has fed into Islamophobia. Um, so yeah, like Canada is like the Canadian government is a huge part of this problem. Um, and so uh, the article that I read um, talks about the National Council of Canadian Muslims um, and that this council released 60 recommendations um, for different levels of the government to combat hate and racism across Canada. So I, wrote, I won't read them all out because there's 60, but we'll attach the link. And they're, they're really thorough. They talk about like different things that the federal government could do, things provincial and then municipal, and then um, things that schools could do as well, like review curriculum with the lens of anti-Islamophobia, um, like looking at um, ways of addressing verbal, verbal assault, because that's uh, a lot of a lot of the recent reports um, by these um, hijabi women have been like largely like death threats and things like that as they're just going about their lives. And so like what you do with verbal assaults, um, people maybe aren't always taken seriously because, well, they didn't actually do anything, right? It was just like verbal attack. Um, they didn't actually like physically hurt you, but it's still like pretty serious. Um, so just like different things like that, um, different ways of um, – like keeping an eye on white supremacist groups and like not letting them rally on provincial property, things like that. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure if you you two had a chance to read any any of these recommendations. There's a lot of them, but I, I was really impressed with how thorough they were. I haven't. Yeah, but I haven't had a chance to up. read them yet. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to check them out. I um I actually hadn't heard about the National Council of Canadian Muslims until. Yeah. Uh, the attack in London. Yeah. I saw a lot of their posts being shared around, so I gave them a follow. And the information and the work that they do is actually quite amazing. Mm-hmm. So um, for listeners, if you have a chance, uh, try to follow them on social media and stuff because mm-hmm. um, the stuff that they post is very valuable. Yeah, and the recommendations is a whole uh, like booklet, well-described, um, like each point, like why this is an important thing to do. Um, yeah, really really good stuff um so for listeners um who heard our previous episode the one on islam and um islam in canada or what, what was it called muslims in canada, muslims I think in canada we called yeah. it. muslims in canada um so we interviewed our friend fayez azadi and um she said on the episode um well she gave us a background of islam in canada and if you haven't listened to that episode you should it's really good um, and one of the things that she says is that compared to other countries, Canada is comparatively pretty good in terms of treatment of Muslims. And um, yeah, so she's definitely right in that, especially when you take into account the treatment of Muslims in China or India, where Muslims are not treated well at all. Um, I do want to highlight, though, that this doesn't mean that Canada doesn't have room for improvement in this area. The National Council um, that we just mentioned on their website they said more muslims have been killed in targeted hate attacks in canada than any other g7 countries in the past five years 
So I find very often in Canada, we like to pride ourselves when we're better than the U.S. And this is like, we are worse than the U.S. in this area. So that's uh, something that kind of surprised me, especially with 9-11 and Islamophobia that has been in the States in the past that uh, we've been worse for the last five years. Yeah, we definitely tend to use that as an excuse. Yeah. At least we're not them. Not as bad. Yeah. Yeah. So especially with laws like Bill C-21 in Quebec, which we've talked about previously, there's lots of opportunity for you as listeners to raise your voices on these issues. And one way, one of many ways you can do this is to call or write an email to your MP or even the prime minister, which I have done recently. Uh, Yeah. Or if you want to support uh, the council that we mentioned, the NCCM, there's a form on their website that sends a letter to the prime minister as well as provincial premiers. Uh, to show your support for the NCCM's policy recommendations. Um, yeah, I don't necessarily have any discussion questions for these articles per se. It's just like a lot of, yes, this is a problem in Canada. Please, everyone, try to do something about it to make it better. But I don't know if you have anything um, that you would like to reflect on. I feel like this, yeah. at least for me, this isn't like a... I have an opinion yeah, on right? what you just said. It's like, <laughs> yeah. yes. Yes. Yes, what you said. Correct. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's okay. I think we had enough existential debate with the other two. Yeah. Something that, yeah, something that I just wanted to bring up was, have any of you written a letter to Trudeau? I know, Rachel, I asked you this before. You said you hadn't. No. No, but I realized that I've definitely written an email to somebody in the government but I'm not even sure if they were Canadian or American but it was one of those things where like an organization is like how you can help send this sort of email to somebody and I was Mm -hmm. like cool I can do that and I did and I don't remember who it was but I got an automatic response back that said sorry our inbox is full so I guess it was working yeah yeah no, I, I tweeted a lot at Randy Hillier when he was briefly my MP. <laughs> I so. yeah, I also they weren't nice tweets though. <laughs> no, I did that with uh, my local MP from uh, Manitoba. Um, I'm like I'm sure also there are a lot of like you said like there's these there's these forums that um, you can fill out online. Um, I've done a lot of them in the past, but very often they'll be sent to several different people. So you may have actually sent an email to. Justin Trudeau and not realized it. Um, but something that I thought was kind of funny, um, because there's a separate like website you, you can go on to send Justin Trudeau uh, an email. And there's this long section about, um, please don't send the Trudeau's gifts. Like We can't open them for security reasons. We appreciate that you want to give these gifts to us, but uh, please donate them elsewhere. And I just thought that was really funny of like, oh, like, I guess we're still giving our leaders gifts which is just like a weird thing. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like even if you really <laughs> support who's prime minister at the moment, why would you want to send them a gift? I think it must be like yeah. some, sometimes my it's tax cultural. money is my gift. Yeah, yeah, that's true. My vote is my gift. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, I agree to keep you employed longer. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I also feel weird about just like the, like, the honorable titles and things like that. Um, like, what are they even? I don't even know. Like, 
the right honorable Mr. Trudeau or something. I don't even know what it is. Is he that honorable though? I I just feel weird about giving these titles to people that I personally don't necessarily respect. I do respect Justin Trudeau, even though he has made mistakes. But then there's someone like... um, Randy Hillier? uh, Justin, or no, sorry. um, Brian Palliser um, in Manitoba that I have much less respect for than I do Justin Trudeau. And so I just like, I don't want to give them these titles. Especially when, yeah, it's just a job title. I mean, they're serving the people, but it's also, you know, a job. Um, So why are we, you know, just calling them right and honorable just because they got hired? Yeah, right? Like, you need to earn my respect. I will not just, like, give you this frivolous little title in my email just to make you feel good about yourself or because it's, like, the acceptable way of treating I don't know. We've just turned into like a yeah. fuck the government podcast. <laughs> well, I think this complete is with the late late capitalism show. <laughs> I think it has to do with like our connections with the monarchy and the way that like, you know, your royal highness, the way that like yeah. titles have just become a part of government and yeah. yeah. Different things like that. Oh well. Yeah. Sorry. Side tangent. Religion and politics. All in one. Yeah. All right. So I think that's it for our episode for this week. Uh, Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, Again, we'll put all of the links to the articles that we talked about in the show notes. Um, You can find that in the description if you're on a podcasting app, or you can go on to our website, which is nearlynuminous.ca. Also, if you're on like Apple or like, I don't know, what is it? Stitcher that can do it. Please, please give us five stars. Uh, you can't do it on Spotify yet, but if you rate us, it'll help other people find us and make us look better in their eyes. Yeah. Also, you know, we're just, we're just trying to make people aware of, you know, other religions and religion in general. Um, we hope we're doing good work. Share it with your friends. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Nearly Numinous. For full transcripts of every episode, check out nearlynuminous.ca. There, you can also find links to subscribe to us on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Have a topic you'd like us to talk about, or would you like to be a guest on a future episode? Reach out to us at nearlynuminous at gmail.com. That's spelled N-E-A-R-L-Y-N-U-M-I-N-O-U-S at gmail.com.